0: Welcome, everybody, to Everything's Relative with Eve Sturgis. I'm Eve Sturgis. I'm your host. We are a podcast that is looking to talk to people who have had DNA discoveries, have had their lives turned upside down. So often, by direct-to-consumer, mail-in DNA kits uh, that are so popular right now. It can happen other ways, too. It can come with phone calls and emails and papers that are found and, you know, deathbed confessions. But either way, connection is happening uh, faster and faster because of technology. Lives are getting turned upside down and I want to talk about it. I am very excited today because I am here with TJ Raphael, journalist. She's a journalist with Sony's podcast division. And I'm excited because I have been chasing her politely and professionally persistently Um, since like January or February when I first saw a promo for her project called Biohacked. And I emailed her right away and was like, you got to come on my show. And she's very busy. So I've just been bugging her. And I finally kind of like nailed her down right now. So I'm super excited because also totally coincidentally, although maybe the universe was planning this, the last few episodes have really been like donor conceived focused, even though I also, of course, like I discuss NPEs, non paternal events, and I discuss late like discovery adoptions um, and or any other you know variable within our world. But lately, it's been a lot of donor conceived like season four has inadvertently become this like donor conceived theme very often. So it's perfect that we're in the last few episodes of the season and I finally rankled you in to talk about this awesome <laughs> project, um, beautifully produced podcast. So it's called Biohacked. It is about the the industry, the science, the the money. It's about all the things behind. She can tell us and the politics behind <laughs> um, donor conceived the donor conceived industry. So. Let's just jump right in. Welcome. I'm so excited you're here.
1: Yeah. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry uh, it took so long to get here. We had a real mad dash uh, leading up to the launch of the show, and it was like, Hey, you've got three months to produce you know 12 mini documentaries uh, and then six bonus episodes that are all highly reported. And I was like, ah, when do I sleep? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, thanks for bearing with me and, and letting me come on uh, a little bit later.
0: Oh, of course, and I hope you didn't think that I was complaining. I was not complaining no, that it no. took, <laughs> <laughs> that it took a couple months. <laughs> it's totally understandable. Um, I'm just I just feel glad that, that it, we finally made it happen why don't you tell me, and or why don't we let our listeners know kind of off the bat, are you donor conceived?
1: No, so I'm not donor conceived. Uh, the way that I came to this story, it's actually uh, a little over five years ago now. Um, so my friend from college, Amber, uh, she and I hadn't seen each other uh, in almost a decade. Like we were in the same journalism classes. Um, we kind of uh, had a couple friends in common, but we weren't super close. And I had been living outside of New York City for a while. And then I moved back. Um, I grew up in the New York metro area. And, you know, I had I bumped into her and I was like, hey, we should like hang out. Let's like get, grab a coffee, grab a drink. And she was like, sure. And then uh, like a few weeks later, she had You know, texted me and was like, Oh, my husband and I are going to the beach. Would you want to come? And, you know, for anyone that lives in New York, somebody with a car, you're like, Yes, I will (laughs) ride in your car to the beach because otherwise it could take over an hour in the subway. And um, it was a little awkward because, like, Amber and I weren't super close friends, but um, we were friendly. And I remember we were floating in the water and, you know, we hadn't seen each other in a really long time. So we're kind of catching up on each other's lives. And she was like, yeah, so this crazy story, like I just found out through a commercial DNA kit that like my dad's not my dad and like my dad's an anonymous sperm donor. And I was like, wait, what? And like, this is 2017, um, you know, 23 and me, I think in 2016 had only sold like a million kits. So was relatively new um, at that point. And you know, me being a nosy journalist, I was like, can I record you? <laughs> can you like tell me the story? And uh, that's what she did. And that's kind of how it started.
0: That's amazing. At that time, uh, how long had she like, how long had the discovery been real for her before, before she was floating with you in the water?
1: Yeah, she'd only known uh, for about two and a half months at that point. OK, so like fresh. Real, real fresh. Yeah, she hadn't um, tracked down her bio dad, as she calls him at that point. She didn't know who he was. Um, she had kind of come to this discovery, I think it was uh, mid-May of 2017, when she had confronted her parents about her discovery on through 23andMe. And then I think we were at the beach in July, so it could have been even less than two months, like six weeks later. And it seemed like a mystery to me, and I was like, "This is an incredible story." I spent a lot of my career focused on covering uh, re- reproduction, uh, more so in as it relates to, you know, reproductive justice and access to reproductive healthcare, like abortion, birth control, things like that. Um, and I thought that this was a really interesting way to do another story about reproduction that hadn't, I felt at that time, really been covered. But it, you know, took five years to make. (laughs) So I'm glad it finally I uh, saw the light of day, I had gone to multiple, I pitched, I used to work at, uh, in public radio at WNYC, I pitched it there, kind of got a no there, then I went to Slate Magazine and was working on their podcast network, pitched it there, uh, you know, got a no as well, I pitched it during my job interview at Sony, which was actually my three-year anniversary with Sony Podcasts, is August 12th, so pitched it again. Then, you know, Sony had other projects in the works that they wanted me to work on. And so like every year I had kind of re-pitched it um, until finally last, yeah, last July, I got the, finally the green light in the show, the first episode dropped in March. So it's been a long, many years, labor of love to um, tell the this story, which Ambers is one of, of many in, in the series that we tell.
0: Yeah, so just um, I'm just curious as a as a podcaster and a, and a journalist and I mean, I'm not a drummer, <laughs> so I'm just curious, when you say that you pitched it, during these five years, you still, you were still working on it, like collecting all this, mm-hmm. you were still, so even though you didn't have like a green light from anybody, you were like, I know that I'm onto something and I've discovered this and yes. I'm going to keep like recording and making all this content and eventually I will find a home for it. But just because you got a know didn't mean that you weren't continuing the work the whole time so so the five years is really and how did you get from from floating on the water with amber and finding out that you know dna consumer tests straight to consumer tests were revealing all this information to people how did you get from there to all the way to like oh this has this is an industry and this is a political thing and this is this is a really big deal how did you get from there mm-hmm. to there? Is it just because you're a journalist? Do so you like Google everything? Like Yeah,
1: so as I started interviewing Amber about her story and, and just talking to her generally about what was going on, I felt also that I had to fact check kind of what she was telling me. And so, you know, I asked her, you, you know, oh, have you tried to track down your biological father? She's like, he's not on 23 and Me. I've, you know, I found a cousin, but they won't talk to me. I've kind of hit a wall. And I said, well, why don't you just go to the clinic where, you know, your mom, you were conceived? And she's like, well, the clinic doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. I was like, I was like, well, surely those records have to exist somewhere. And then that's when she told me, like, no, those records can be destroyed by the time a person reaches 10 years old. Um, and there's no law that says that they have to even be given over if they do exist. And I was like, wait, that seems completely insane. Um, and then, you know, basically every step of the way, as I started learning more about her story, you know, I was like, wait, that, that doesn't seem like it can be true. And then as I did my journalistic due diligence, I was like, holy
0: shit, it is true. How is this, how is this allowed? Um, I love, I love how much of this unraveled just because you are a person that just started to think about it. Like you just, you were questioning things in a, in a totally logical way. Like you didn't, Uh, to me it sounds like like it just it it, for so long so many people just like went with it yeah and then because you're a journalist or because of your work in some capacity you were like wait a minute i know just enough about these things to to know that this sound this is like red flags everywhere
1: yeah yeah and then amber um you know by that fall uh late fall like Uh, early November is she had connected with her biological father. His name is Kurt, And we interview him in the show. She and uh, her half sister, Caitlin. uh, That's how Amber found out. She connected with Caitlin on 23andMe. And Caitlin had known all of her life that she was donor conceived. She's a child of a single mother by choice. And meanwhile, Amber had no clue at all.
0: That's such a great, that's such a great and teeny tiny case study right there yeah <laughs>
1: exactly and like amber you know amber was in a lot of denial initially like she's like you know the only way that this girl can be related to me is that you know my dad must have cheated on my mom and and not that amber thought that was in her father's character but she was like that's the only logical explanation. And then, you know, when when she did confront her parents, they they told her the truth, uh, but only in the face of, you know, DNA evidence. Um, But then, yeah, Caitlin and Kurt, uh, you know, we kind of document how they then track down Kurt. Um, He was open to talking with them and he told Amber and Caitlin, he donated sperm three days a week for three years and so conservatively he's like i probably have at least like 150 kids out there and so when amber told me that i was like that can't be true i was like this that doesn't seem like a thing that can happen it's it's totally and it's also
0: now like i've i've had enough time with the donor conceived community to know that that 150 is a very generous estimate. So I also just appreciate Kurt's confidence that he's like, they were definitely using my sperm <laughs> all the time. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's sort of like, I feel sort of affection towards him for that, but, um, but yeah, but he's not wrong about, about possibility for sure. And right. prop, you know, probability. Um, so yeah, three days a week for three years. That's uh, that is three times 52 is 150 times three is 450 donations. Roughly.
1: It's a lot of sperm. Yeah. And then, you know, a lot of the clinics also take one sample and divide it into two, sometimes into three. So then, you know, 450 times three, I'm bad at math. That's why i work in with words and (laughs) talking to people. So I don't know what that number is, but uh, it gets pretty high.
0: We're getting into like 1400, I think. Yeah. But that's, (laughs) yeah, I don't know either.
1: (laughs) That's a really high number. But I just thought even, even the 150, I was like, that seems outrageous. And like, aren't there limits are like how could this be possible and so yeah as essentially as amber learned more she would tell me through our interviews and then i would you know do my journalistic due diligence of like try to verify this information thinking that what she was saying like this can't be true only to learn like oh it's very possible probable and like also how An entire industry has operated for decades and that's when i was like i you know i almost fell over where i was like wow this is a much bigger story than just like you know my one friend who had this wild discovery this is really about an entire sector of the american medical system operating with little to no oversight um, and and raking in you know millions of dollars in the process, and so that's what I that's one of the reasons why over five years I was like no I'm going to keep keep trying to get this published somewhere where it, you know hopefully it can reach lots of people because I was like this seems just
0: too wild. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What um, it sounds like lots of things were a surprise, but was there anything that was like your biggest surprise in this process? Yeah, I would
1: say um you know the the fact that genetic testing is voluntary um within um you know assisted reproductive technology um and also that most cryobanks tend to operate on the honor system which I also found to be quite shocking, because I think a lot of us have probably gone, you know, applied for a job and had to do a background check, (laughs) like, you know, things that you would assume are very basic, um, that they're, you know, relying on the honor system and, you know, places like California Cryobank, for example, which is you know still one of the largest cryobanks uh, in the country, if not one of the largest in the world, um, they didn't start running even clinical psychological evaluations of donors until 2017, um, which is pretty recently.
0: That's the same year that Amber found out, by the way. That's like just the other day, 2017. <laughs> like that is wildly recent. Wildly recent. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And. Um, you know they don't do criminal background checks not to say that you know people who have been convicted of something shouldn't be able to have you know families or procreate but you know having that information might be helpful for uh parents who are seeking these uh you know this donated material um and then also in terms of medical history is that again it's operating on the honor system that you go in you fill out you know the form i even you can go on to i'll just use california cryobank uh as another example again um you go to their website right now today and like click on donor profiles you can see their medical information but it's literally just like an xxx have i had it had i not and like i was looking at one through the course of my reporting and this was just like maybe eight months ago and like the person had checked like family history of cancer but just like wrote in like colon cancer comma breast cancer and that was all the information that that prospective parent would have received not detailed reports or additional information just like a yes it has existed in my family history right as if like um, yeah
0: and even not even like oh it was one time it was one person yeah, yeah just like a and yes, they had a great like, prognosis it was just or right. or we've all had it this is a big deal, <laughs> like nothing, no, nothing whatsoever. Yeah.
1: And so that was really surprising to me that like, you know, and, and I think it does, a well, it obviously does a disservice to donor conceived people who need medical information to be able to, you know, mm-hmm. live full and healthy lives. Uh, but also I, I think to prospective parents who are seeking out donated material like they're being you know it's sort of it seems like a lot of smoke and mirrors like you're selling a parent who really wants to have a child you're telling them this is safe like you're we're doing our due diligence here when really it's operating on the honor system and even when people are forthcoming there's not a lot of information even then um and i think you know the cryo banks have a vested interest in making money and, and getting as many clients as possible um, so why would they change their business practices there's not a lot of incentive to do that when yeah it might scare away prospective donors to know that like every five years you're going to have to mail in actual health records from your doctor's office um you know that like when you're going through the initial screening process that like we're going to interview your family members like we're going to talk to them that might scare people away from donating and and i think i can confidently say from my reporting that is why the industry does not want to change right um which is troubling because i I think (laughs) assisted reproductive technology is really expensive so again it's it's not just for the donor conceived people who i think obviously you know have human right to know this information but also their parents it feels like they're kind of being duped a little bit
0: absolutely duped i mean and we know all sorts of i'm sure you came across all the sorts of ways that that the parents are duped but you know with it either not really being the person they're told that is the donor or it is the actual doctor who is the donor or you know with no with no oversight and no background checks it's interesting that they don't even to me, it just seems like since, like especially with the rise of all the other information that comes with DNA testing, like the history of diseases or genomic likelihood of things, that um, that they wouldn't just ask for your sperm and then ask for a DNA test. Mm-hmm. Like that feels like that would be way less and that would, to me, conceptually feels less invasive than contacting every member of your family um right but they don't mm-hmm. even do that um or you- sometimes they they do
1: they sometimes do do that but it comes at an additional cost so it's a it's an upsell in the way that you might go to a car dealership and you know say you know do you want the heated seats well it's going to cost you 50 more bucks or whatever so for well, the for the
0: for the for the prospective parents It's an. It's they have to pay more to get the DNA information.
1: Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That is so effed up. (laughs) (laughs) It's so ridiculous. I mean, and it. I didn't even know that. Yeah, it could be $500 more. It could be $1,000 more. And, you know, again, going back to the fact that these treatments are expensive from the jump, uh, you know, obviously, you you know, we say, well, it's $500. What's the difference? But if you've tried, you know, four rounds of IVF and already, you know, shelled out $30,000, and this is your last sort of attempt to be able to potentially have a child, yeah, $500 or $1,000, especially a a lot of uh, people who... (laughs) they have to try multiple times, even with donated sperm uh, or
0: donated eggs. Absolutely. And I look like I, you know, uh, uh, everybody has different income levels and understandings of what is expensive and what is not. But every single person that I know um, in my personal life, podcast notwithstanding, that has used a donor and most of them are same sex couples, zero of them have paid for the identifying Mm. information because it was more money. Right. And they're all in different mm-hmm. like they're all in different income brackets but every single one was like oh no it was this much more money like i you mm-hmm. know when i the ones i have talked to in my life um yeah so i just think like i when you said like you know hey some people might say $500 is not a lot more i think at that point i think everybody thinks that's more yeah <laughs> right. i know you know everybody i know yeah. um yeah.
1: yeah same here like, i just i've just heard from you know in, from donor conceived people I've interviewed, which I understand, I understand their frustration of saying, well, you know, you, like people, you know, parents should just pay for it. And yeah. it, I I understand parents think they, they probably should just pay for it. But, you know, we unfortunately live uh, in a capitalistic society. And then in the United States, obviously, you know, reproductive treatment is not covered, even in the most basic senses, let alone for assisted reproduction, uh, reproductive
0: technology. Sorry. Right. <clears throat> well, also, um... Also, I think I think the which you'll you know is a is a theme of a conceptual problem throughout all of the way that donor donor conception or um, assisted reproduction works is that uh, all the people involved are adults thinking about themselves, and I'm not even criticizing or judging. But you're thinking about yourself. You're not thinking about the cells that will one day be a child. Mm -hmm. who will one day be an adult who might want that information. You're just thinking like this costs a lot. You're just thinking about yourself, your own bank account, your own process, your own journey, whether or not you need this information. I think, you know, and I, I, um, if anybody disagrees with me or thinks I'm way wrong about that, like, please let me know. I would love to have a conversation, but I think there's so much of this uproar lately has been because all these children are grown up. And they're all saying, like, hey, wait a sec, wait a second. Right. Yeah. I mean,
1: I definitely, you know, in in talking with donor conceived adults and uh, Amber specifically, like I remember in one interview, she said something to the effect of, you know, everybody thinks about the baby they want, but nobody really thinks about the fact that that baby's going to grow up and like if you're a parent you're going to wind up parenting an adult for more of your life than you will a child um and that adult is going to have wants and needs and want to know where they come from and what their medical history is and and everything like that and I think I I personally think the way that the industry operates the way that cryobanks operate um they are trying to sell you to have a baby a baby and so they, yeah. Yeah, so they market everything, you know, online with happy couples and little babies. They're not, you know, I don't think they're adequately counseling even prospective parents on like the implications of even the choices they're making with the clinic. And again, why would they, as it might impact their bottom line?
0: Right. Uh, It's actually kind of hilarious to imagine an advertising campaign for a donor conception, like a Cairo bank with adult. like adults with their grandparent age parents. Yeah, yeah. Like, we're so grateful that we've just done 35 years like this or whatever. Like, yeah. cause baby, look guys, babies are so cute. Mm-hmm. Uh, babies sell, they sell stuff. Um, yeah, totally exactly. Like, do you know, uh, um, do you know, and I'm, may, maybe it comes up in your podcast, but um, do you know, has a, has a sort of like rising tide of voices like what's happening right now asking for all this information and pointing out all the irregularities or the injustices um has that ever happened before is this the first time that the the choir banks are like facing this situation
1: yeah it really is and that's also one of the things that really drew me to this story is like you know, Amber. She was born in 1987, and a lot of the um, donor-conceived adults I speak to also born in the 80s. And in, in the podcast, we do a deep dive into the history and how this technology started being used more widely. And it really was in the early to mid 80s where you see this boom in cryobanking, and like it's really the first time in human history that this technology is starting to be used and now you know 30 plus years later you know the chickens come home to roost um you know cryobanks doctors in prospective parents and donors in 1984 could not have foreseen the internet could not have foreseen you know i think the human genome wasn't even fully sequenced until the 90s like dna testing commercial dna testing so um i think that was very interesting to me that yeah we are seeing this new wave of donor-conceived activism. um, And it's really only able to have taken shape because of commercial DNA testing that really started to take off around 2016. And I think us as a society, it's the first time we've had to really wrestle with these sort of difficult questions. Um, Of course, that's, you know, existed within the adoption community for a long time. Um, You know, I know donor conceived activists are really studying the adoptee rights movement to try to um, take a page from their strategy book. Um, But even with the, you know, early adoptee rights movement, you know, they didn't have access to DNA testing, now they do, obviously, like the rest of us do. but yeah I, I think we i think in the united states we've had these conversations earlier about adoption and we're just starting to have them with uh donated gametes and and repro- assisted reproduction
0: it's so interesting because i was just thinking about how no one has had they've had no oversight they've had no reason to keep track of people they've had no reason to not charge extra money for the and it's like i was just thinking about from the cryobank perspective of of like of 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 just like it, it ain't broke <laughs> like, like for, yeah. them, for them like wait we just keep making more and more and more money and if anyone within the industry was like do you think maybe we should keep better track of anything you can see why everyone would be like no 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 the system is working right. go 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 you know more and, more and more um so that's why i was asking if like no one has ever presented this challenge to them, why would they change mm-hmm. any any part of, mm-hmm. of what they do, right?
1: Yeah, that's their, yeah, but that's their reasoning. Like I I spoke with um a couple times to Sean Tipton, who is the president of the, or uh, excuse me, the chief public policy officer of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. And I spoke to him about these issues. Like, you know, this is what donor conceived adults want, You know what is the kind of industry's response this is the main you know medical society for assisted reproduction and you know he was he said to me he's like you know i mean he first said he's like you don't need to know who your parents are you don't need that information that's not important i'm like i personally disagree but interesting to hear you say that as somebody representing the industry
0: i wish everyone could see my face right now
1: I know. I my mouth was on the floor the first time I heard that. He was, said that okay. on the record. Oh yeah, it's in it's in uh, episode nine.
0: Oh my god. Oh my god, you guys. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Keep going. Sorry, sorry. You,
1: um, you know it's okay. And then you know I asked him. Well, like. You know, these are the measures activists want to see. They want to see, you know, limits on the number of people a donor can produce so somebody doesn't wind up with 150 siblings. They want to be able to access identifying identifying information about the donor. Um, You know, they want access to medical records and and many other things, right? It really comes down to a record-keeping system um, in addition to more testing. And he, Sean Tipton at the ASRM, you know, flatly said, like, It's going to make it more expensive so you know we don't want to do it because it's going to make it a lot more expensive and it's going to reduce the pool of potential donors if we have to hound them every couple years for medical information and so yeah they they don't want to change because
0: of the financial burden they Mm -hmm. they say yeah i love money everybody loves money i get it you know i get it (laughs) it. um yeah if only ethics and morality and humanity didn't get in the way of things
1: which i mean it's actually you know as i've like thought about this issue it's actually like ironic to me in a lot of ways that like you know um men who have sex with men gay men bi men other people um you know men who have sex with men are not allowed to donate sperm in the united states um you know I, i think for many years they were not allowed to donate blood um i, I do believe that rule has been lifted but i'm not 100 sure but um you know they're not allowed to donate sperm still in 2022. and it's ironic because that population would be a whole new group of donors that cryobanks could pursue and then as it relates to the question of anonymity those people might be also most open to contact given that they might not have the ability to get a surrogate and have their own child. So be open to you know having a connection to a biological child. Um, and especially given that the vast numbers nowadays of people who use donated sperm are queer women. Um, so they also might be more likely to be in contact with a donor if they know it's a member of the LGBTQ community, yet the industry still is like, they're not advocating for the FDA to change its rules, whatever, because they, even in their advertising, they're selling this like heterosexual couple dream um, on all their websites of like the happy nuclear family. And so I think there's lots that, uh, in my opinion, that fits into that sort of dream family that the
0: industry is also continuing to sell that drives part of their policy so one thing that i like about your uh podcast and the way it's described is it talks about um politics you know and it's interesting because it's interesting to me because i like to talk about politics and or i can't I can't avoid politics for me. That's just mm-hmm. who who I am. And I get a lot of criticism for that with this podcast. Like I get a lot of, mm-hmm. um, not a lot, but but people take the time to send me emails and um, yeah. <laughs> make comments that they just wish I wouldn't be political and I could just like stick to the stories. And I just don't think that's possible. And right. you know, neither you or I have said anything about blue states or red states or Republicans or Democrats today or progressive you know or far right like no one we haven't said any of those (laughs) words but like if you're listening you know why this is political like you just described it so perfectly about how how and why politics gets involved um and and it, it so it's just interesting to look at i don't know i don't i don't have have a you know of course i have a direction i would like the world to go but i don't you know i'm not I just i i just i just want us to acknowledge it and talk about it all the things that people aren't aren't talking about i personally feel like
1: family and reproduction in the united states are inherently political there's no way around it um you know when it comes to family um you know the ability let's like start from the beginning like whether or not you're doing you know using donor sperm or or donated eggs or embryos like you know, maternal health care in this country is abhorrent. It's, you know, significantly worse for black women. Um, it's also worse for other women of color. Um, even among white women um or and white women in and poor rural areas, you know, maternal health, there are maternal health deserts. So it's not just like a racial thing. Um, then childcare is incredibly expensive. Um, paid family leave, the ability to take time off of work and care for your child, the ability to earn a living wage to be able to support that child. Like, um, I, I often <laughs> get annoyed when politicians, whatever, you know, they're political affiliation like say like oh like women's issues are like family issues like they're issues for everyone who live in society (laughs) you know if you um are part of a family it's an issue you know and and so I think in this country who can have a family has been politicized for a long time um when you decide to have a child um if you don't want to have a child like (laughs) these issues are inherently political and I think um you know people can disagree with me on this but it's you know it's i think it's unavoidable as well not to acknowledge it because it really you're missing a big <laughs> slice of of how you know our society operates when you don't put uh, these things into context of, of what they mean practically um in a place where you know laws are made about our bodies um and, and who can reproduce um, and that you know to my earlier point that includes men who you know want to donate sperm. Let's say it's not just uh, you know about abortion or or uh, you know women and other people who can get pregnant and their ability
0: to have a child or not have a child. It's it goes far beyond that. Absolutely, thank you. Standing ovation, standing ovation, <laughs> and a slow clap for me. That was really beautiful. Um, yeah, I look. I I don't want to make sweeping assumptions but i'm going to go ahead and guess that everybody that has written me to talk or commented about my politics is probably a white person um it's you know it's just the the ease of the the i was gonna say the ease of privilege but that might be redundant the privilege (laughs) of privilege (laughs) right the luxury the luxury to not think about politics um yeah it may, it maybe that luxury yeah but if 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 a person of color has complained like by all means like speak up uh if i've got you wrong <laughs> but, um but i yeah i but mean
1: i i got the same you know i got comments um on our podcast and apple podcast about being quote unquote too political um especially when and i got it kind of from all sides when i raised the issue regarding regulation, we were talking, you know, talking about what the laws are and you know, around donor conception and, and how they should change. And I said in the show, um, you know, I try not to editorialize too much in the show, but I did hear that, you know, whenever we talk about laws around reproduction, I get very nervous because I am somebody who believes in the right to choose. I am somebody that believes in like, you know, good access to birth control and the ability to start your family when you want to start a family, and if you even do. Um, and, you know, the idea of like assigning, you know, rights to something that isn't yet born to a sperm, to an egg, you know, I it's conflicting for me because I believe people like my friend Amber, like, yeah she had a right before, you know when this process was happening to be able to get that information but at the same time um you know anti-choice folks are assigning um special rights to the pre-born and so i think for donor conceived activists as well this is going to have to be some kind of you know slow balancing act here because you know if you are advocating for sperm egg and embryos to have certain rights who's to say that that idea can't then be abused to then say yeah i'm going to jump on this bandwagon and say you know if you create an embryo in a lab that's considered a person and you know which now we're hearing about as roe v wade has been overturned or you know assigning personhood to you know an embryo or a zygote or even potentially beyond so you know that would be you know and something i Would encourage donor conceived activists to think about as they go on their journeys to lobby lawmakers um because i fully think that donor conceived people should have the right to um especially critical health information and the ability um to have an you know a non-anonymous donor and like for people to be able to track down those biological relatives and form those connections. I think it's incredibly important. Um, But I also, it scares the shit out of me, the idea that like it could be abused in 10, 15 or 30 years. Like we see, you know, with this idea, like 30 years ago, we didn't know any of this was going to happen with DNA testing. What's going to happen in another 30 years? So that's my um, maybe cynical New Yorker trepidation coming out. (laughs) But yeah, somebody wrote on my, uh, on our reviews, like that I should be quiet about abortion and and the potential effects
0: um, that new laws could have right right look it's an incredibly complex and nuanced conversation that can be that can get get hard emotionally but it can also get overwhelming intellectually and these are all mm-hmm. things that not everybody wants to do you know Mm -hmm. and maybe they're you know perfectly capable of it but they don't have the bandwidth right now like i'm not suggesting that anybody can't can't (laughs) handle the intellectual level um of of talking about that nuance but it's really really complicated and it um we all we all i think everyone at least in in this country i think everybody relates to some level of the emotional connection to political discussion but Mm -hmm. unfortunately um Unfortunately, depending on your perspective, uh, I don't believe it can be avoided. If we're really talking yeah. about this whole picture, we're trying to talk about this whole picture because the donor conceived or donor conception industry was not looking at the whole picture. So we're just asking everybody to expand the conversation, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. At the least, at the least, <laughs> and then and then make changes, you know, as appropriate. But. Um, What was your favorite part of this process
1: oh what was my favorite part i would say hearing from listeners about their own stories um you know i got a lot of emails from people being like that is my exact story oh my god i can't believe it like this feels like this is exactly what's happening to me and um you know i I think it felt it felt good to me to be able to have people have their own stories reflected back at them, um, especially like, you know, my my friend Amber, like I saw the real pain that she was in when she was going through this. and. How she felt super alone when this was first happening. You know, she didn't know anybody that was donor conceived. She barely had ever heard the term. She had only like seen, you know, heard about sperm donors on TV or in movies. And then, like, to have this happen to her, you know, she said it was incredibly disorienting. And um, so it it made me feel, um, I guess, happy that I people were
0: listening and and connected with the material and and felt that they weren't so alone in what they were going through that makes sense to me that makes sense to me just as as (laughs) someone who also is doing a podcast that it's really about like connecting with people who understand Mm -hmm. the experience that 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 really makes it feel so valuable or worth worth all the labor um yeah so Moving forward, are you continuing the biohacked project, or um, moved? Have you moved on to other things? What's what's going on for you now? What's next?
1: Yeah. So. Um... You know, Biohacked is going to be a one season show. I, I think Sony has interest in kind of rebranding the feed and making it about their stories around family that don't have to do with DNA at all. Um, stories oh. that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that they still want to tell family stories, but, uh, you know, they, I've, thankful that the show was successful enough that they're like, we think this is a vehicle to launch other kinds of content from the feed. Um, so that makes me really happy. And then I'm sticking with Sony and developing new shows, I'm hoping to be developing something right now. I'm, I'm doing some reporting legwork um, on the origins of the abortion pill in the United States, it has a fascinating history that I had no idea about. and. Um, Hoping to bring that <laughs> out sometime uh, next year, but we shall see. I'm try- still trying to convince a couple of people to talk with me. Um, and then I, I'm pitching and developing other stuff for Sony that has nothing to do with family or reproduction or politics. Uh, that is just sort of like like cotton candy, really like silly kind of fun to listen to content that's like you know about historic rivalries and drag queens and you know just completely totally different um, which is good because you know I need uh, a break sometimes from uh, the heavy heavy
0: stuff. Yeah, I was just uh, thinking like you need balance. Speaking of, bal- of, bal- of balance. <laughs> um good that you've got like a di- uh, uh, you've diversified your creativity in the in the podcast realm. That's really great. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean I love I love podcasting. I am I tell people I'm like, I'm a nosy Puerto Rican girl from Long Island so it's in my DNA to just talk to people and tell other people about it <laughs> like that's what I was born and bred to do Never just like chatting <laughs> <laughs> yeah i just need to like it's essentially like gossiping but like maybe a little bit more uh <laughs> a little bit more shine on it but yeah that's i'm like that's my only skill is just like chatting and then telling other people
0: about it <laughs> i love it oh i love it yeah. it's so fun yeah. um that is so wonderful well thank you so much for giving me your time do you feel <laughs> Like there's anything that that uh i should have asked that you wanted to talk about i didn't you know give you a chance to segue into anything or something you want listeners to know um no i mean
1: i would say if you haven't listened to biohacked please check us out um, if you do like us, leave a rating and review <laughs> because I want to drown out those negative ones. If you didn't like it, please don't leave a rating and review. Just kidding. Um, and then I guess I, I'll recommend I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. So I'll recommend uh, some books um, about yeah. the subject. Yeah, definitely. That informed my reporting. Uh, one is The Baby Business by Deborah Spar of Harvard University. Um, and one is Test Tube Families, Why the Fertility Market Needs Legal Regulation by Professor Naomi Kahn. Um, Both were extremely important um, reading for me. Um, I'd also recommend Sex Cells, that's C-E-L-L-S, by Renee Almeling at Yale University. Um, So for whoever is interested in diving deep on donor conception, um, those are heavy
0: but really interesting reads. Oh, that's great. That's great. We're always looking to like uh, bolster the the library, just the yeah. like the reading library <laughs> for for the the MPE community. It's so great. Well, thank you so much. Good to talk with you. Yeah, you too. Have a fantastic rest of your day. You too. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. Wow, I have such huge gratitude for TJ and her podcast Biohacked. So go listen to it now, or wait just a few months and listen to it when I announce that we're going to have a podcast club party, podcast club party. I'm going to say that twice, uh, with TJ. Um, as you remember, I am wrapping up season four right now, but I definitely want to stay engaged with my listeners because you are why I do this in the first place. This community is so important to me. So I have finalized the dates for our next book club party with Krista Bilton. Her episode was last week. We're going to do October 2nd at 5 PM Pacific standard time, just a couple hours on zoom with everybody to talk about the book, talk about it with Krista. Um, so if you haven't picked up a copy, do it now. Uh, that's going to be so fun. And then I want to change gears and do a podcast binge party. Um, I'm calling it a podcast club party. So I actually have time to listen to biohacked when the season wraps up. So let's do that just to change pace. Um, and we'll do a zoom party with TJ. So I suspect that we should wait till after the holidays to do this. October is getting pretty close after Krista's book. So it may be my first event of 2023, but I will keep you posted like I do. Um, In the meantime, contact me if you want to be on the mailing list for book club party or podcast club party. I'm very excited. So also, that is not the only news I have today, my friends. Remember how I said uh, like a million times that I'm wrapping up the podcast season and about to go on hiatus. And I've also said and mentioned that the impetus of this decision was that I was making huge mistakes. Um, I made a, the hugest mistake I made was a few weeks ago. I had a wonderful interview. I felt like it was a once in a lifetime opportunity and I forgot to record it. I forgot to hit record. And I had to contact these lovely people and tell them that I completely blew it. And I have been feeling so embarrassed and I've been so hard on myself. I knew that it meant that I was doing too much and I needed a break. And then y'all, I found the interview. I did not forget to record it. It had just saved itself to a very deep and dark random file in my computer. I have never been so relieved in my life. Therefore, all of that to say, this is not the last episode of the season, because I want to close out the season with this special Lost and Found episode next week. So next week will be my finale for season four. Please join me. I'm so excited. I'm so happy. I'm so relieved. I'm still embarrassed. But in the meantime, uh, if you want to support this project, there's all sorts of ways to do that. Follow along on all the socials. Uh, We are at Everything's Relative Podcast. If you want to see more, go to the website, everythingsrelativepodcast.com. That's also where you can buy a process journal or a t-shirt. All these different ways to be part of the community. Are we good? You good? Um, I'm so happy to be back for one more episode next week. It's like it's like my only chance to be an encore as a band. Uh, like, I'm the band, and it was the last song, but now I've come out for one more next week. Um, so if you didn't leave the stadium to go get to your car yet, there's more to enjoy. Yay! And in the meantime, keep brushing your teeth. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Eve Sturgis. This is Everything's Relative. Bye-bye. Everything's Relative with Eve Sturgis is produced by Eve Sturgis and Kaelin Egan and edited by Joy Rumel. Logo designed by Ivy McNally, and music is used with permission from Goodbye the Band. Eve is a licensed psychotherapist, but her podcast episodes are not therapy sessions.